I'm W.F. Strong. Welcome to Beyond Texas. Let me open today's podcast with this quote. Believe in a love that is being stored up for you, like an inheritance, and have faith that in this love there is a strength and a blessing so large that you can travel as far as you wish without having to ever step outside it. That's from Rainer Maria Rilke, a poet who wrote mystically about love and marriage and relationships, actual and unrequited too. I like his poetry, but it is his letters I find most enlightening. Rainer Maria Rilke's famous letters to a young poet represent such brilliant advice for all young men and women, even if they aren't wanting to be poets, that I typically share the essay with my college classes at the end of the spring term when many will graduate. Rilke's advice is GPS for any soul who has a deep passion for any art or enterprise that makes them, from time to time, feel lost, like being rudderless on a vast sea. What shall I do with this talent? Rilke famously said that the only journey is the one within. And so he guides them toward the journey they must undertake, but they must go alone. Like all the truth seekers in history, it is a solitary journey. Mostly he seeks here to offer exceptionally practical advice to a young man who would be a poet if he could find the courage to be one. The young man he is advising is one who is himself a student at the very military academy that Rilke suffered through years before. That is likely the reason that Rilke, from the age of 27 to 32 or so, took the time to write letters to this young man. He no doubt identified with the struggles the boy was enduring while trying to live as an introspective poet in a world designed for the denial of such pleasures. Now, he did write ten letters, and they are compiled in a famous book with that title, Letters to a Young Poet. I'm just going to read the first one. My dear sir, your letter reached me just a few days ago. I want to thank you for the deep and loving trust it revealed. I can do no more. I cannot comment on the style of your verses. Critical intent is too far removed from my nature. There is nothing that manages to influence a work of art less than critical words. They always result in more or less unfortunate misunderstandings Things are not as easily understood, not as expressible as people usually would like us to believe. Most happenings are beyond expressions. They exist where a word has never intruded. Even more inexpressible are words of art, mysterious entities they are, whose lives, compared to our fleeting ones, endure. Having said these things at the outset, I now dare tell you only this, that your verses do not as yet have an individual style. Yet they possess a quiet and hidden inclination to reveal something personal. I felt that very thing most notably in the last poem, My Soul. There, 
Something of your inner self wants to rise to expression, and in the beautiful poem to Leopardi, something akin to greatness and bordering on uniqueness is sprouting out toward fulfillment. However, the poems cannot yet stand on their own merit, are not yet independent. Not even the last one to Leopardi, not yet. In your kind letter accompanying them, you don't fail to admit to and to analyze some shortcomings, which I could sense while reading your verses, but could not directly put into words. You ask whether your poems are good. You send them to publishers. You compare them with other poems. You are disturbed when certain publishers reject your attempts. Well, now, since you have given me permission to advise you, I suggest that you give all that up. You are looking outward, and above all else, that you must not do. No one can advise and help you. No one. There is only one way. Go within. Search for the cause. Find the impetus that bids you write. Put it to the test. Does it stretch out its roots in the deepest place of your heart? Can you avow that you would die if you were forbidden to write? Above all, in the most silent hour of your night, ask yourself this, must I write? Dig deep into yourself for a true answer, and if it should ring its assent, if you can confidently meet the serious question with a simple, I must, then build your life upon it. It has become your necessity, your life, in even the most mundane and least significant hour, must become a sign, a testimony to that urge. Then draw near to nature. Pretend that you are the very first man and then write what you see and experience, what you love and lose. Do not write love poems, at least at first. They present the greatest challenge. It requires great, fully ripened power to produce something personal, something unique, when there are so many good and sometimes even brilliant renditions in great numbers. Beware of general themes. Cling to those that your everyday life offers you, Write about your sorrows, your wishes, your passing thoughts, your belief in anything beautiful. Describe all of that with fervent, quiet, humble sincerity. In order to express yourself, use things in your surroundings, the scenes of your dreams, and the subjects of your memory. If your everyday life appears to be unworthy subject matter, don't complain to life. Complain to yourself. Lament that you are not poet enough to call up its wealth, for the creative artist there is no poverty, nothing is insignificant or unimportant. Even if you were in a prison whose walls would shut out from your senses the sounds of the outer world, would you not still have your childhood, this precious wealth, the treasure house of memories? Direct your attention to that, Attempt to resurrect these sunken sensations of a distant past. You will gain assuredness. Your aloneness will expand and will become your home, greeting you like the quiet dawn. Outer tumult will pass it by from afar. If, as a result of this turning inward, of this sinking into your own world, poetry should emerge, you will not think to ask someone whether it is good poetry. You will not try to interest publishers of magazines in these works, for you will hear in them your own voice, 
you will see in them a piece of your life, a natural possession of yours. A piece of art is good if it is born of necessity. This, its source, is its criterion. There is no other. Therefore, my dear friend, I know of no other advice than this. Go within and scale the depths of your being from which your very life springs forth. At its source you will find the answer to the question whether you must write. Accept it, however it sounds to you, without analyzing. Perhaps it will become apparent to you that you are indeed called to be a writer. Then accept that fate, bear its burden, and its grandeur without asking for the reward which might possibly come from without. For the creative artist must live in a world of his own and must find everything within himself and in nature to which he has betrothed himself. It is possible that even after your descent into your inner self and into your secret place of solitude, you might find that you must give up becoming a writer. As I have said, to feel that one could live without writing is enough indication that, in fact, one should not write. Even then, this process of turning inward, upon which I beg you to embark, will not have been in vain. Your life will no doubt from then on find its own paths. That they will be good ones and rich and expansive, that I wish for you more than I can say. What else shall I tell you? It seems to me everything has been said. With just the right emphasis, I wanted only to advise you to progress quietly and seriously in your evolvement. You could greatly interfere with that process if you look outward and expect to obtain answers from the outside, answers which only in your innermost feeling in your quietest hour can perhaps give you. I was very happy to find in your writing the name of Professor Horacek. I harbor the highest regard for this kindest of scholars and owe him lasting gratitude. Would you please pass my sentiments on to him? It is very kind of him to think of me still, and I appreciate it. I am returning the verses with which you entrusted me. I thank you again for your unconditional and sincere trust. I am overwhelmed with it, and therefore have tried to the best of my ability to make myself a little more worthy than I, as a mere stranger to you, really am. With my sincerest interest and devotion, yours. Rainer Maria Rilke. Rilke was an Austrian poet. He lived in tumultuous times from 1875 to 1926, witnessing the greatest technological and social revolutions of any period in history, perhaps. It included World War I. Early in his life, he has his own internal struggles. He was born to a mother who had the year before lost a baby daughter in childbirth, and so she saw Rilke as her lost daughter's replacement. She dressed him in fine and elegant girl's clothes and paraded him around like a large doll that she adored. After years of feminizing him, he was eventually sent to a military school where I guess they thought the process could be reversed. He spent six years there, mostly in misery, before leaving because of illness. Given that childhood, what else could he have become 
but a poet. He eventually, at the age of 20, was able to follow his heart and go to the university in Prague, where he majored in art history and literature and philosophy. During his life, he wrote a great deal of highly praised poetry and one novel. He was somewhat of a mystic and was rediscovered in the 1960s and has enjoyed a wide following in poetry and love and philosophy ever since. Among New Agers, he is widely read, along with Rumi. Though I don't approach him from that school of thought myself, I do enjoy his insights and particularly his practical advice for writers and artists in general. Let me share a few of his famous quotations on philosophy, marriage, and love. On philosophy, he said, I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us just once, beautiful and brave. Perhaps everything terrible is, in its deepest being, something helpless that wants help from us. The future enters into us in order to transform itself in us long before it happens. The deepest experience of the Creator is feminine, for it is the experience of receiving and bearing. Now, as for marriage, he had this to say. It is a question in marriage to my feeling, not of creating a quick community of spirit by tearing down and destroying all the boundaries, but rather a good marriage is that in which each appoints the other guardian of his solitude and shows him in this confidence the greatest in his power to bestow. A togetherness between two people is an impossibility, and where it seems nevertheless to exist, it is a narrowing, a reciprocal agreement which robs either one party or both of his fullest freedom and development. But, once the realization is accepted that even between the closest human beings, infinite distances continue to exist, a wonderful living, side by side, can grow up. If they succeed in loving the distance between them, which makes it possible for each to see the other whole and against a wide sky. His comments on love are widely shared by new lovers and old lovers alike because he was so gifted at expressing love's deepest, most eternal powers. He wrote, Just give me a little time. I want to love the things as no one has thought to love them until they're worthy of you and real. And he spoke of infinite love, too. It is part of the nature of every definitive love that sooner or later it can reach the beloved only in infinity. And finally, this poem. Extinguish my sight, and I can still see you. Plug up my ears, and I can still hear. Even without feet, I can walk toward you. And without a mouth, I can still implore. Break off my arms, 
and I will hold you with my heart as if it were a hand. Strangle my heart, and my brain will still throb. And should you set fire to my brain, I can still carry you within my blood. That's true love, the always and forever kind.